0: In this final lecture, we'll talk about the future of the healthcare system. So I'm going to cover a bunch of topics in kind of rapid fire succession. We'll start by talking about demography and um, how the global population is changing. Uh, we'll talk again about wealth and how wealth leads to health. We'll talk a little bit about, and back in the United States, again, about debt and deficits and how health spending is basically swallowing everything else. And then we'll close on some thoughts about taking individual responsibility and concept called patient activation and a few exciting future trends. And then we'll call it a day. So let's go. So you may not know this, but for several decades, the Chinese government made it illegal for families to have more than one child. And their concern was that they had too many people to support. And so they, they made it illegal and a lot of a lot of families had well families only had one child one of the things that because the country is largely rural it was important to many of these families to have a male child and so what we saw was a pattern of selective abortion as well as selective abandonment of female children and now the population proportion in china is is out of whack um by a few percent, but a few percent translates into a lot of men who can't find wives. The Chinese government has lifted that uh, restriction and they because they're concerned about falling birth rates. And so let's look at what China looks like today. So this is a population pyramid that I got from the US Census Bureau for 2021, showing the Chinese population. You can see on the left is men, on the right is women. And you can see from the bottom up, right, we go from how many children under from babies to four-year-olds, then five to nine, ten, so forth, and on all the way up. And what you can see is this rather large bulge in the middle of uh, middle-age, you know, uh, early middle-age to middle-age people, but a very wide top in the 60-plus, right? And so you have what you what we see is if you can kind of project going forward you know 10 more years these middle this middle fat section is going to move forward now some people are going to die and so these are going to begin to shrink at the edges but you know it's not unreasonable to think that most of these people will survive into their 70s and maybe even into their 80s and so you're going to see this bulge continue up With fewer and fewer people to support the needs, the retirement needs of the retired people. Now, the Chinese see this as a national security threat, and that's why they've they've lifted the one child policy. But why are we seeing this aside from the one child policy, right? So aside from the one child policy, this pattern is appearing in many other parts of the world including the United States. So why do we see this pattern? Well, one of the things that we're seeing in China in particular but we have and and what we see throughout the world as countries move into from rural agricultural societies into industrial urbanized societies and then post-industrial societies like the United States people move from the countryside where they are farming to the city where they are working jobs outside of the home and children move from being an economic asset to a luxury good. So think about this. You're running a farm. You need lots of hands. You know, what's really cheap having children who then turn into working hands. Um, but when you move to the city and you get a job in an office or a factory having children doesn't help with the economic well-being of the family unit it only becomes a it becomes a luxury good it's something you do because it's meaningful to have children plus as you get wealthier fewer of your children die which is a really positive outcome so what we see this pattern of a shrinking base as a country moves from rural agricultural into industrial urban is common across the world. And so we can see that in the United States as well. Uh, Now we went through that process much, much farther back, you know, 50, 75 years ago, well, not 50, probably a hundred years ago now. Um, And so we still have some effects from it of urbanization you know urbanization really kind of I, I forget where the flipping point was but it's in the 50s probably where where we had more people living in cities than in the countryside we also see women as as women have have gained more rights as individuals in in the United States you know things like it wasn't until the 70s that women could independent of their husbands, set up bank accounts and credit cards. It's kind of shocking to think about today. Uh, But as women got more ability to control their own lives, one of the things they chose to do was delay having children. And so we're still seeing some of that working through uh, the United States as well. So again, what we have in the United States is a very wide, very wide top Right and relatively flat. Now the Chinese have kind of a go back. Right, they have a narrowing, a wider middle and a narrowing base. That's even worse. This is bad, but that's worse. Um, and so, you know, not as many. You know, so there. So we have a a widening top where we have people who are in the retirement zone. Right, so all these people starting here from sixty five to sixty nine. So this bar here, these are people who who qualify for Medicare just by age. they also tend to be retired. And so we have this very wide group of people and it's, and, and this bulge of the baby boomers is going to be moving into that top range. And again, some of them will die off at, at natural causes. Some of them will die off, but what we're, what we're expecting to see is that this top section become much wider, including the people at, you know, the people at the very el- most elderly who require the most care. So it's, so, our demography indicates that we're going to require to provide more health care, especially more long term care at great expense while having fewer people in the working population relative to the number of retired people. And so, people who are in the working population that's going to be you all are going to be called upon to provide. To, to share more of your income and more of your resources with the elderly in our population. Um, here's the European Union. So similar to, and this is a 2020 slide, but that doesn't matter. It's, it hasn't, it's probably just gotten a little bit worse. And you can see the European Union has the same sort of uh, bulge as the Chinese. Uh, and They are shrinking at an even faster rate one of the one of the reasons, from my perspective, is they have they make it a lot harder to they provide much more generous social social safety net social programs such as as much earlier retirement. So there's again no reason to have children who would then support you in your in your uh, retired years because the government will step in and do that. And so the more generous government benefits are the less motivation people have to have children who would then take care of them in their retired years. Now, here's a better population pyramid, and this is India. So this is kind of exciting. India is poised to overtake China in terms of overall population. But India's population is much healthier, as you can see, though they're starting to because they are also moving from rural poor into industrialized urban. They're going to go through that same process of a narrowing of the base. But at least right now, they have a much healthier ratio of uh, age in their population. And so as they move into their industrial period, unlike China uh, they have a better position demographically now here's a really lovely uh demographic period po- excuse me demographic uh, uh, pyramid and that's for Nigeria and so m- many of the countries in Africa have what I would consider to be a nor- more normal or traditional population pyramid now m- that's in part because many of these countries have not gone through a proper industrialization and still reflect a very urbanized excuse me a very rural poor population so but but we can expect to see a lot of demographic growth happening in Africa as we see as we see demographic decline in north america europe and china So as we look at the world, we have a population of about almost 8 billion. China is at 1.4 billion. India, just a hair behind them at 1.408 billion. Um, And again, like I said, India is expected to overtake China in terms of overall total population within the next year or two. And the US, as I said way back at the beginning, is the third largest country, single country by Population. So, about forty percent of the world's population lives in China, India, and the United States, which is kind of exciting. Let's look at. So, let's look at. I, I've I've said repeatedly that wealth leads to health. And looking at, and I've talked about the improvements in overall wealth in the world. Um. The taking the Chinese economic miracle of the last 40 years really has taken done more to take more people out of grinding poverty than any other movement in human history and so the chinese in 1980 had the average gdp per capita so the oh, if you took all of the money earned in china and divided it by the number of people in the country, they were somewhere down here, like five hundred dollars per person per year in China, along with and India at the same time. And what you can see over the last forty years is this incredible growth. I mean, think about going from five hundred dollars a year to what is it, about you know ten thousand five hundred. So, so a 20, 20 times. If you lived from nineteen eighty to twenty twenty, you would have seen your family. Or the country go uh, grow 20 times in total wealth. Just imagine what your life would be like if over the course of your life, you, you had 20 times as much wealth or had a reasonable expectation to have 20 times as much wealth, how much better your life would be. And how much more healthcare you could afford, right? And how much of a better diet you could afford, and, and you the fact you could afford to have some leisure time and you could take care of your mental health and so on. So all of these things, all growth in GDP is all good in the sense of it provides more resources for people to take care of their families and take care of themselves. Now, India, far behind China, China has some advantages in terms of being a communist. Uh, authoritarian state, and that state made a decision. Right, the people who lead that state made a decision that that economic growth was a priority, and so they forced through a whole bunch of changes that allowed the state to grow. India, on the other hand, is a contentious de- uh, democracy, much like much like the United States in that sense uh very different in, in other senses, but but a democracy nonetheless. and democracies don't make decisions in neat um in neat direct manner the way that authoritarian governments can do. Uh, but I, but nonetheless, you can see they've gone from you know something like five hundred dollars to something like two thousand dollars. So a four times growth in in economic resources, for individuals in India, And I would say India is poised to have much more rapid growth if they can maintain their democracy um and continue to reform the way that they that that they uh, run their economy. And that's too big of a topic for for this chapter. for this for this class, that's a whole class unto itself, and I'm not an expert in India, but I, I would say, I have I'm bullish on India. I'm excited about India. The democ- their demography is exciting. They're a, they're the world's largest democracy. They have a lot of challenges just like we do. Um but I am bullish on India in a way that I'm not bullish on China because democracies can I think ha- generate long-term uh growth in a way that authoritarian governments cannot. So now I'm adding a whole bunch of other countries on here to, to kind of give you a comparison. So we've talked about India, China. Now let's look at our closest neighbor to the south, Mexico. Not much growth over the last 40 years. They've been hovering at sort of a what we call a middle-income country for a long period of time. Um, we'd like to see that better because that, you know, we'd have better relations at the border with, with better opportunity. A lot of, I, I suspect some of the reason that we haven't seen as much growth in Mexico over the last 40 years is because a lot of those growth opportunities went to China. Um, But I think looking into the future, I think, again, Mexico is well poised to continue to improve uh, as long as it can maintain its governance. A big problem that Mexico has is, is a direct result of, of our drug policies and the market for illicit drugs in the United States causes a major is a major source of disruption in 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 Mexico, uh, and especially along the border. Uh, so I'm 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 again bullish on Mexico because it is a democracy and it does have a reasonably well educated population, um, but they still have a lot of challenges. And we have Canada, our neighbor to the north, very well run country. Um, a lot of social policies that maybe impede growth. Um, and, uh, a lot of our colleagues in our, our our counterparts, our countries in Europe face similar, uh, slower growth because of their extensive social safety net and, and social programs that they have in place. So an example of that is the UK. Um, and then, of course, the United States as the wealthiest large country in the world. So putting this in context right the United States is still wealthier by far than 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 either certainly China or India even though China is approaching having the same size economy as the United States meaning all of the stuff made the value of all the stuff made in China is equal to all of the the value of all the stuff made in the United States but when you take the value of all that stuff and you divide it by population we have you know again what one fifth of the population of China, and so we have m- much more stuff per person, right? Because this is a GDP per capita measure. So, you know, um, so what about challenges to the United States? Well, I've I've talked about this before. This is, you know, this is a graph from 1970 through till to till today, and this shows the amount of debt. So the amount of money that the United States government owes uh, to the world in order to fund its spending. And you can see, you know, we were cruising along through the 80s. This is when we got, got started to get really concerned right back here in 1983 is where we got really concerned about um, about our spending on health care because it was taking up too much of the federal budget. And this is not a graph of just the federal uh, of Healthcare spending, but I'm going to show you in a minute. Healthcare spending is continuing to grow as a share of the federal budget, and that is a problem because we aren't collecting enough taxes to pay for the spending, and it really just kind of takes off. This this takeoff point is the Great Recession of the 2008 2009, uh, when we had the um, collapse of, uh, of the housing market in the United States. And it, you know, that, that triggered a recession, a major recession that you all probably vaguely remember from your childhood. Uh, and we have just continued to borrow and borrow and borrow. And then here's COVID. The effect of COVID makes an even bigger jump as we continue to spend more money. Our federal government spends more money than it brings in. So looking at it in terms of um in terms of how much debt we have relative to how much money we make. So if we take all of the money in the United, made in the United States, right, all the stuff that we make in the United States, the value of all the stuff we make in the United States, and we take the amount of debt that we have and we divide the amount of debt into the amount of stuff, right? That gives us our debt to GDP ratio. So it's kind of like, imagine you had like back here, imagine you had, you were making a hundred thousand dollars a year and you had $40,000 in debt. You would have a 40% uh, debt ratio, right? So the United States back in 1970 had about 40 cents in debt for every dollar of GDP that that it created. And that actually got better, right? Through the, through the 70s and into the 80s. Um, and then, uh, in around the time we got really started to get really concerned about healthcare spending, it starts to kind of take off. Now, this period here is uh, the early '80s. Are the Reagan years? We're spending a lot of money on defense during that period, not because we're at war. We're a couple. We're on. We're we're worrying about a couple of brush fires here or there around the world. But what is really happening is the Reagan administration. And Congress, of course, because the Reagan administration couldn't do it on their own, make a decision to rearm the United States and compete more aggressively with the Soviet Union, who was trying, uh, uh, explicitly trying to take over and spread communism throughout the world. And so we spend a lot of money building up the armed forces in the United States in the 1980s to compete with the Soviet Union. And the reason we do that is our sense is that they are producing, they are using as much of their economy as they can to produce their defense industry uh, and their weapons systems. And what we prove to them is we have more capability of of producing more weapons and more um, more military might than they do and still have excess left over. But that is really what runs this money up, runs up the debt in this period. In 1989, the Berlin Wall falls and effectively the Soviet Union begins to disintegrate in this in this window here. Um and the Cold War ends. And by the way, I joined the army in 1989. Um, But but we don't ever really slow down our spending. Some We do reduce our spending on uh, military spending, but by that time, spending on social programs such as Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid are now taking up the slack, any slack that was left from reductions in in spending on defense and what we see is a steady increase as people begin to the baby boomers are beginning to retire leave the workforce um and our demographic population is such that we have to we're not bringing in enough money to cover all the expenditures that the federal government is doing and so we see this kind of progression now this is concerning at when the line you know the only time we've seen a ratio of debt to GDP like this was during World War II. And what this does is is when you have this much debt, people start to question, will you be able to pay back any money? If you ask to borrow more money, people start to get a little scared of lending you additional money. And yet, as our demography continues to get worse, which it will before it gets better, we're going to have to borrow a lot more money uh, to pay for all of the care that our elderly population needs. And so this is not going to get better unless we take some really radical measures. So this is this was the federal budget in fiscal year 2022. And you can pull this off of, of um, the Congressional Budget Office uh, website. So this is the organization that keeps track of all of the spending. Um, plans and, and actual execution uh, of spending in the United States. So this is kind of an interesting pie chart. Um, if you add all three of these rings together, I guess that gets to 100%. So we spent $6.3 trillion in fiscal year 2022. So in 2022, we spent $6.3 trillion. And what you can see is we've got three kinds of spending, Three, the federal government divides its spending into three kinds of budgeted items we have mandatory spending which is is spending that congress has made a promise to to spend and automatically happens unless congress passes a law saying it's not going to spend it so for example social security we have a commitment Right? A prior law that said this: is, these are going to be the social security benefits based on you know, how many years you worked and how much money you contributed to the system. And so there's a formula in place that un, that that dictates how much a social security beneficiary is going to get, um, and it stays that way. And those checks go out from the tre- from the U.S. Treasury to those beneficiaries. Unless Congress votes to change it. And so that's what when we say it, when we call something mandatory, it's because Congress has put a glide path in place, a plan in place, however many years prior, saying, this is our plan, we're going to spend this much money into the future. And unless and and Congress doesn't have to vote on it every year, it's it becomes what they call mandatory spe- mandatory spending in the sense that the federal government has to pay for it, unless Congress changes its mind. So we have a formula for how much Social Security, we have a formula for how much we're going to spend on Medicare, for Medicaid, and so on. Right? These and then there's a bunch of other kinds of you know welfare student loans like the things that you're using to pay for for your school, and then others. All these things are mandatory in the sense that Congress passed a law some time ago, and these benefits are just going to keep on rolling out unless Congress passes another law changing those benefits. Then we have discretionary funding, and the difference between discretionary and mandatory funding is, mandatory is we passed a law saying we're going to spend this money, into the future, unless we say otherwise, discretionary is money that we have to, that Congress has to appropriate, meaning they have to pass a budget every year saying the money, here's the money that we're going to spend. And discretionary breaks into two categories, defense and non-defense. And so defense, of course, is all the army, the Navy, the Air Force. Um the Marines, right? All the money that we spend on maintaining aircraft carriers and the 82nd Airborne, all that, all that, seven hundred fifty-one billion dollars. And then non-defense is everything that's not mandatory and everything else you think of. So like national parks, uh, the Department of Education, the Department of Transportation, you know, all, all highway plans and 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 highway money, um, uh, ports, airports, the TSA. Uh, your favorite you know favorite experience at an airport the TSA the transportation security agency the FBI all that stuff is in this non defense so we're spending 910 billion on everything else so we and then the last piece is is the interest that we pay on the national debt and that's 475 billion dollars this year and we're spending that money on interest because of all the debt that we have that I've been talking about this is a scary amount of money right Um, not that long ago, that was bigger than the defense budget. So what's kind of scary is we spend more, well, almost, well, I guess not more, almost the same amount on Medicare as we do on our entire defense budget. And just put that into proportion, all of the money that we spend on the army, air force, Navy to protect the country and protect trade in the world is roughly the same, you know, by a margin of error as Medicare is the amount of money we spend on Medicare. So just keep that in proportion, the primary function, you know, one of, one of the basically two primary functions of the federal government is the, is the national defense, right? The other is keeping States from killing each other. Uh, uh, But one of the primary functions of, of, of the country is, is defense. And it is now, what roughly 10% we spend a, a little a little more than 10% of our federal budget on defense. So and then social security that's just money flowing out to retirees. So this is the problem that we face that you will face as young people moving into the workforce is you're going to have to support an ever growing amount of mandatory spending on programs such as social security, medicare and medicaid. As your elders, as your grandparents and your parents continue to age, we're going to have to find ways to cover this money. And here's the problem. We go down here to the um, uh, amount of money that we spent versus the amount of money that we brought in. So total outlays, right? We now have the mandatory, that's the outer ring here. Uh, uh, Discretionary, that's this ring plus, plus interest. We spent six point three trillion dollars, but we only brought in four point nine trillion dollars in taxes. And so six point three million minus four point nine, excuse me, six point 3, three trillion minus four point nine trillion is one point four trillion. That just gets added onto the debt. It's like we're you know you're going out to Scorp's buying buying beers, and you know at the end of the at the end of the month you charged hundred dollars, but or let's say you charge six point three, you know, dollars, uh, but you only pay off four point nine dollars of of all the money that you spent this month, and so one point four gets added onto your balance, and so that's just more money that is gonna we're gonna have to borrow, and then we're gonna have to pay interest on that money. We meaning you as young people going into the uh, workforce. So, how much is, have they spent so far? This was, I think, in you know, I t- pulled this in in May. Um, so, three point one trillion dollars spent so far this year. So, these are all things you need to think about. Now, I talk about all this because there has a it has a direct impact on our ability to fund healthcare. Right. So, federal payments towards Medicare and Medicaid continue to grow as a share of healthcare delivery talked about this a bunch of times, hospitals and health, other healthcare providers rely heavily on Medicare and Medicaid because we have a growing elderly population and a growing elderly poor population. And all of this, because we are highly reliant on this because the healthcare delivery system is highly reliant on this, you know, this is a, a piece that's going to continue to grow Um and uh, with the with the population, and so uh, it's going to continue to grow as a share of the federal budget. And is going we're going to have to find a way to reform that. We're going to have to find a way to provide healthcare to our elderly, fragile population in a way that isn't as expensive. Now we did that, right? We we found some ways to reduce costs uh, and improve care. We changed, you know, we passed Tefra and we in, implemented PPS you know that was a way that that it it was a it was radical surgery on the system um and it had a positive effect both in terms of outcomes as well as in terms of saving money but it is going to have some real impacts we saw a lot of hospitals shut down because they couldn't run efficiently under this new system now we're seeing we're going to keep on seeing healthcare spending grow and grow in particular Healthcare spending by the federal government, because of the benefits that we've promised in terms of Medicare and Medicaid, uh, and and the aging population that's aging into that benefit, um, and this is no surprise, right? We have literally known this for decades. We've been talking about it since the 70s. As we realized, you know, we realized, oh wow, we made this enormous promise with Medicare. And we've got this enormous bulge of baby boomers working their way towards retirement. Um, and politicians operate on how do I, like I talked about before. I'm primarily concerned about winning my election a year from now or two years from now. I'm not that really, you know. And and if I can do something about a, a challenge that's coming twenty years from now, great. But uh, but I'm going to sacrifice the well-being of people in the community twenty years from now so that I can get reelected next year. That's how politicians work, and that's how politics works. It's very it's a myopic approach, uh, myopic approach, I should say, uh, myopic approach to a long term. Problem, right? We're very focused on the thing that's right in front of us. When actually, what we've got is we're driving towards a cliff. Um, so, what's going to happen? Probably, probably because politicians only respond to near-term, uh, uh, near-term challenges. We're probably going to have to have a crisis. We're probably going to probably have to get to a crisis where the federal government can't pay its debts, and we're going to have to do some sort of radical surgery that's going to cause a lot of harm. Uh, a lot of harm to a lot of people, and this crisis is going to be catastrophic. So that's the bad news. Um, but as we continue to see this kind of pressure, right, we're going to see. I think we're going to see a bifurcation in the kinds of of insurance plans that are available to us. So we've talked a lot about you know kind of the different kinds of of healthcare plans that are available. HMOs, right? Health Health Maintenance Organizations are the the kind that really focus on paying a fixed fee to providers and telling those providers, Hey, here's your population to take care of. Here's your money. Go to don't ask, you know, don't, don't call us for more money. I think that's one of the ways that we're going to go in the future. That puts a lot of the effort and the concern on the provider that puts all the risk on the provider to be like, Hey, you know, you're not getting any more money, figure out how to take care of this population with this amount of money on the other side you'll see, I think you'll see if if you're not in an HMO, I think you'll be in a high deductible uh, high um, high deductible uh, health plan where the cost of the plan will be relatively low because it reflects something closer to pure insurance in the sense that, you know, Every time you go to the doctor, it's not going to be a $20 copay. You're going to pay the full price of going to see the doctor, 150 or $200, until you hit this very high deductible of, say, $10,000, right? And so you're going to be really conservative if you go to see the doctor and the doctor's like, hey, I think you ought to get an MRI. And you know you're not anywhere near that $10,000 deductible. You're going to say to the doctor, I, are you sure I need an MRI? Because an MRI is like $1,000. And if you know, if you send me to just get an x-ray, that'd be like $100. So doc, tell me, if this was your money, would you get the MRI or not? Right? And so I see those two directions. On the one hand, HMOs put the doctor in the seat of being financially conservative. On the other side, you see with the high deductible health plan, you see the patient being put in the driver's seat of being financially conservative. And that's what we need is the system to become more financially conservative, to ask harder questions about whether we really need to do a test or really need to do a procedure or whether we can wait and watch and see what happens. And that's why I say we're going to bifurcate. We're going to go, we're going to, instead of having a a nice distribution of, hey, we've got some PPOs, we've got some HMOs, we've got all these different things in between. I think we're just going to see uh, uh, in your lifetime, a lot of those alternative plans go away, and people are going to be shunted into basically two forms: one where the system, the provider takes on all the risk; the other where the where the patient takes on a lot more risk. Um, because what it what each of these does is it forces the patient uh, to demand uh, either the system or the patient to demand more cost control, and we've got to get to a place where we have more pressure for more cost control. We have seen a lot of this, this economic pressure is going to continue to put pressure on the health system. And so what we've seen, right. And we've talked about is hospital consolidation, right. Hospitals getting together into bigger and bigger systems. We're going to continue to see that. I think in your lifetime, we'll see, you know, most hospitals will become part of a system. They'll be the, you know, it'll be extremely rare to see a hospital. that's not part of a larger system. I think those systems will continue to get bigger and bigger and they're going to have to keep chasing more and more scale. They're going to have to keep trying to chase ways to get more efficient because I think as they get, they're going to continue to be hooked on federal payments. They're going to continue to be addicted to, Medicare and Medicaid payments. And I think the federal government is going to have to keep on, is going to start cutting those payments. And it's going to become uh, increasingly challenging for small systems to operate separately. And they're going to have to rely on being big systems that can try to squeeze out as much Redundancy, as much savings as I can from eliminating redundancy, like having two finance officers at two hospitals. You can do one finance officer for two hospitals. That saves you a bunch of money. I think you're going to continue to see that. I think we're going to continue to see uh, costly technology. We're going to keep on demanding that um, it's costly, but if you can again get into a big system, things like a health a health record. An electronic health record is really expensive for one system to employ, but you can, that's one area where you can get really, really solid benefits from uh, economies of scale. And then, you know, we're going to continue to work on population health as AI, as artificial intelligence gets better and better about being able to look at populations and figure out, all right, you know here's a group of people that have a high probability of getting sick and requiring a lot of care let's get out ahead of that and start working with them and providing them systems for feedback like let's give them let's give them a wearable that helps keep track of their their heart rate or their blood sugar and try to make sure that if they're a diabetic we give them technology that that helps them Manage their diabetes so that their health condition doesn't continue to deteriorate as a result of uncontrolled diabetes. All that stuff is expensive, but it's better to prevent a diabetic from getting sicker and requiring, say, an, a foot amputation. That's a lot worse than spending money up front to keep them from getting sick. But we're going to have to have all this infrastructure to do that. So it's exciting. So I've I've made a big point throughout this class that we can think of healthcare as expensive, but health is relatively cheap. Growth in healthcare expenditures, right? If you get sick, we've got the best technology, the best doctors, the best drugs in the world, but they're really expensive. And so when you get sick, we can take really good care of you. If you get sick, that's really expensive. You know what's cheaper? Keeping you healthy, right? Health can be improved by patients if they take charge of their healthcare, if they become active in managing their healthcare. So instead of just saying, "Ah, huh, well, I gained twenty pounds this year. Ah, I guess there's nothing to be done about that. It is what it is," right? Instead, getting a and and therefore, you know, if you gain a lot of weight, you become, you know, obesity is one of the major drivers of all kinds of bad health outcomes, diabetes, heart health, and so on. So how do we get health cares? Excuse me. How do we get health cares? How do we, where did that come from? How do we get patients to become more engaged in their, in, in managing their health? How do we get them to take on um, responsibility for their own health behaviors? And so this becomes the holy grail of population health. And it's what I talked about when I talked about that idea of more than 100 minutes is, you know, the health system only touches you uh, on average 100 minutes a year. The rest of the year is up to you to manage your health. And we've got a lot of, in the United States, we've got very high rates of obesity. That's what we, you know, there was a phrase going around for a while, a couple of years ago called first world problems, right? Being fat is a first world problem. There aren't a lot of fat people in poor countries. In the United States, calories are cheap. That's not a thing that was common in human history until relatively recently and only in the wealthiest countries in the world. So when you think about first world problems, you think of the wealthy, um, uh, 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 population in the world, right? We have a crisis of abundance. We have too much available to us. And you think about, you know, how we evolved, you know, if you're out as a hunter gatherer and you run into uh, something that's sweet or something that's fatty, you gobble that stuff up as quick as you can, because there isn't going to be a sweet or fatty thing coming your way again for a long time. And most of the time you're going to be eating, you're going to be moving a lot exercising a lot just as part of your daily routine of hunting and looking for some calories but in first world right you can go down to a gas station pick up a pint of Ben and & Jerry's and it's the perfect evolutionary bomb it's the worst thing you can possibly do to yourself it's chock full of fat uh and 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 and, and sugar and our bodies were designed to to find that once in a great while rather than being able to get it every day, day in and day out. So how do we get, how do we start working with this? Well, there's a concept called patient activation, which is all about getting um getting individuals to take responsibility for their health. And so, we've got four levels of, of patient activation. This is one model of patient activation. And I'm going to let you can read the details of this on the slides, but basically level one is, is the patient is basically saying, I can't do anything about it. I can't be responsible for my health. My doctor is in charge. Level two is recognizing, well, you know, I could probably do something, but I'm really just not there yet. I don't know what I need. I don't understand, you know, I don't understand that carrots have fewer calories than than ice cream does, right? I just don't understand that sort of stuff. And so I recognize that there's some knowledge out there that, you know, and there are ways that I could be, be, be improving, but I'm not yet engaged. Level three is um, I am now partnering with my healthcare providers, looking for information, starting to try to practice better health behaviors. And level four is... I'm in charge, right? I am the person that is driving this train. I recognize that I'm only going to see my doctor 100 minutes a year, and I've got to be the one that's in charge, and I'm going to make investments outside of the healthcare delivery system that are going to result in better health outcomes. Specifically, I'm going to focus on having a healthy lifestyle, and healthy lifestyle is the single best thing that you can do to reduce the probability that you are going to wind up having to use large amounts of healthcare delivery resources. Now that doesn't, you know, we all have genetic time bombs ticking in our bodies and they you know, and as you get older, it becomes harder to do this. Trust me, I'm in my early 50s now and and I'm I'm feeling it. Uh I used to be able to eat whatever I felt like eating. Uh, and I could wake up in the morning and go for a five mile run and, 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 and I never gained any weight. And as I have gotten older and entered into middle age, I put on weight just by looking at a can of, uh, at a, um, a can, <laughs> looking at, uh, looking at a, a quart of Ben and Jerry's, whatever they sell a pint of Ben and Jerry's. So you really have to, right. In order to, what we really need in order to fight this, this crisis of healthcare expenditures is we need to move the population from level 1 to level 4 we have to get somehow get the population to understand and to become en- to understand what a healthy lifestyle is and to become engaged in leading that healthy lifestyle this is a questionnaire that you could give that that is sometimes given to patients to say you know to see how much how engaged they are uh, you can look at that. An- another interesting innovation, and so now we'll get into some innovations that I think are exciting. Um, this is a patients like me is a website where you can create an account. It's free. You can create an account, and and you can uh, put information in about uh, your health status. So you can, if you're a diabetic, for example, you can put in information about your, your health status and they will link you into communities that are trying, you know, that, uh, are focused on improving the lifestyle and health outcomes of diabetics. And you meet patients like you, right? So you're, this is not a, uh, primary, this is not primarily a healthcare provider run site. This is a site that is meant to is a peer-to-peer uh, site where you can meet other people who are trying to manage their health conditions and give each other advice and you know tell each other about innovations, tell, tell each other about things that you've done to try to improve your uh, pr- improve your health outcomes. So if you're a diabetic or you're a cancer survivor or you're dealing with cancer, or you're a parent or a caregiver, of someone with a condition. You can get onto patients like me. And there's a lot of evidence that the quality of advice that is ultimately kind of bubbles up from sites like patients like me is extremely valuable and extremely high quality. And what this one of the benefits here is it reduces our reliance on healthcare providers and puts the patient in a more engaged role. Other exciting things that are happening is this idea of personalized or precision medicine. And this is, you know, where, where companies are going to custom create, pharmaceutical companies are going to custom create drugs for you. And so this kind of intersection of pharmacy and genetics, where you're going to do a blood test to get a genetic profile of you. And they're going to be able to, the pharmaceutical company is going to be able to create customized. Uh, drugs that are going to respond specifically to the genetic markers that you have. And this is part of the MRNA, you know, revolution that we're seeing. And the goal is rather than creating, you know, Tylenol, you know, for everyone, we're going to create Tylenol specifically created for you and a lot of custom manufacturing that's, that's evolving in the United States now. So you think of like the, um, maker bots and so forth that you know in in in, can make individualized products at incredibly fast speeds and we're doing the same sorts of things in the pharmaceutical realm so this is really exciting uh and what it can do is you know reduce kind of trial and error prescribing so we do a blood test the we run appropriate checks and the you know genetic profile tells us well this drug will work on you and this won't and so we won't have to run through like well let's start with the one that works on most people and then we'll move to the next one and the next one and the next one that's a lot of what that's a lot of what oncologists do is they start by looking at well here's the you know here's the drug that works on the most cancers of this type right and then if that doesn't work we'll move to the next one and the next one looking for the thing that you know you respond to well if we could just get a blood test get a better genetic Profile of of your cancer, for example, we could then um, target with precision a personalized drug that would treat your single cancer. So, and this could reduce, you know, the time and cost of clinical trials. And we talked about why are drugs so expensive? Well, because it costs almost a billion dollars to get a drug to market. So, if we can reduce that cost, we pharmaceutical companies can sell drugs at lower price. Other exciting things that are related is AI and machine learning, right? This is probably going to be the key to population health. So now that we have these EHRs, right, electronic health records that are becoming universal, we can train AIs. We're going to feed all that data into an AI with, along with health outcomes, and AIs will be able to begin to predict this person's going to get sick. This person's going to be fine. This person needs this kind of treatment. This person should get this kind of intervention. That's going to be amazing, right? And so your doctor is going to get a report from your AI, from this AI that's operating inside the, the electronic health record and say, hey, patient Jones is, you know, you should be talking to patient Jones about uh, uh, heart health, right? Because they are at risk. Maybe we should get them some sort of uh, wearable technology that will keep better track of their heart health, something along those lines. I think it's really exciting. Transhumanism is an interesting um, uh, phenomenon where people are, people in the transhumanist movement want to integrate technology into their bodies. So rather than waiting for their bodies to age and need interventions they want to go ahead and start replacing stuff right away like so imagine like uh wolverine from uh 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 what is x-men right so his bones are all replaced with titanium uh same idea right so transhumanism is looking at different ways to start kind of melding technology into uh into body into the human body so it's a, they're a little bit of a crazy group, but, but it's kind of exciting. Um, you've got a video with featuring Hugh Hare, who's going to, who's saying, we all be, are going to become cyborgs uh, and cease to think about the technology as separate from us. Um, so, you know, we've I, I, got a bunch of things like Elon, you know, we can think about cochlear implants, which we've talked about previously, right? So this is where, you know, uh, a child a child who's born with congenital hearing loss, uh, can be can be surgically outfitted with cochlear implants. So this was featured in uh, the Sound of Metal. You know, that's a version of cyborg. You know, what transhuman humanists would say is, even if I'm born with healthy hearing, give me the cochlear implant anyway, so that I can expand the range of my hearing. So these are exciting things um, that are are coming along. Uh, don't sign me. I'm not signing up for that, you know, cochlear implant anytime soon myself, but it's a different philosophy, but it is exciting. Um, psychedelics. This is reemerging uh, as potential treatments for mental health. So, you know, uh, LSD and, you know, sil- uh, 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 and uh, ketamine and a bunch of other uh, psychedelics you know, were experimented with in the fifties, they became kind of part of the, they became kind of the part of the co- counterculture. And we really, we, we rejected them uh, from, from polite society for several decades, but now we're starting to, to discover psych uh, psychiatrists and other researchers are starting to discover that psychedelics can be used in the treatment of, uh, of treatment resistant anxiety and treatment resistant depression and they can make huge improvements uh using these psychedelics we don't really understand why or how they work yet but this is this is today cutting edge right this is cutting edge but we run into lots of policy issues right this is still illegal these most of these substances are you know if you have these substances you can get arrested so how do we how do we work out the ability of individuals or uh, 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 providers to start using these substances uh and 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 in order to in clinical approaches and getting past the kind of drug culture uh, uh association of the 60s and 70s transgenderism is is it a hot topic today I'm not sure that it's going to be something we're talking about as much 10 years from now, but but who knows? Um, but this is now, right? So the mass eye and ear is offering facial plastic surgery uh, to feminize male to female uh, transitioning. Uh, so this is something that's out there. We all know about mRNA technology. If I would said this five years ago, everybody would be like, "I don't know about that." But you know, today, right? This is the source of uh, the vaccines that we used uh, for the Pfizer and and Moderna vaccines, and very exciting. Saved. They have saved millions of lives, uh, um, and this technology really is is going to lead to that personalized and precision medicine that. Uh, we need in the future right so like i've talked about every cancer is unique mrna technology could potentially be used to customize uh, uh, treatments for individual cancers what about autoimmune autoimmune diseases uh, um, and other things that are really tragic now where the body where the where the immune system turns on the body and starts destroying the body. Well, maybe we can find an, an mRNA intervention that just goes in and tells the body, hey, knock it off, right? And we could potentially save many people from from terrible uh, debilitating fates. So I bring this, uh, for the last slide, I, I bring back the question of, does the US have a health system? So I said at the very beginning of the course, um, what do you mean by a system? Do you mean, is it a, do you believe that the U S healthcare that do you believe that a healthcare system is something that is complicated, but with the right number of smart people working uh, to organize it, that we can get it to run like a watch. Or do you believe that a, a human system, like a healthcare system is Something that's complex as opposed to complicated and complex means uh, that you can't control it, that all you can do is nurture it and protect it and try to direct it and redirect it again and again. Um, And I would argue that human systems, anytime you have human actors, a cog in a watch does not respond to what you do, right? It doesn't have an opinion about the things that you're trying to convince it of, but a fish, right, is going to be looking for its own best interests. And human beings are much, much smarter than fish. Um, and they're, human beings respond to, uh, to incentives. And so the health system in the United States is a complex system. It has a lot of moving parts. We're a huge system relative to any other um, developed country and human systems are more like reefs that interact with schools of fish right good policy by good government should be a nurturing system right and nurturing the system to to without trying to force individuals to do things that they don't want to do and trying to help them find their way so that they become become active participants in their own health. All right. I hope you've enjoyed the course, and uh, and uh, look forward to seeing you around campus.